Hey, everybody. How are you doing tonight? Uh, Pastor Mark is on vacation tonight. He's in Costa Rica, far, far away. So uh, he, he asked me, no, actually, Pastor Bob notified me <laughs> last night about five o'clock. You're on tomorrow night. You get to speak for a whole hour. <laughs> Yay! So, uh, and it's okay, because here's the reason why, is because uh, I've been planning to try to introduce this, some of this teaching that I'm going to be going over tonight, uh, and I've been doing this, working on this for at least the last couple of three months, and so I was prepared for an emergency, which this is, so we're in good shape. So, um, and uh, so greetings to all of you, those of you guys in Appleton tonight, Stevens Point, glad you could join us, those of you online joining us at live, uh, great to be with you tonight, welcome to the Wednesday night Bible study for Celebration Church, my name is Joe Greer, I'm one of the pastoral staff here at Celebration Church, uh, and it's good to be with you again tonight. We're going to talk uh, about world religions and false religious sects. Uh, and in order to, uh, to define that clearer, because you go to the church that you go to, I'm going to put this particular uh, caption up on the screen first, because uh, you need an explanation. I think it's coming. Let's see. Oh. <laughs> Only in Celebration Church would we have to do this. And... Uh, this is going to be a sex talk, not a sex talk. So uh, anytime you hear me use the word sex, S-E-C-T-S tonight, please know I am not gifted like Pastor Mark to talk about the other S-E-X. Uh, I'm going to talk about this, ex, this sex. And uh, uh, we didn't want to use the other term, which is cult or cults, because we felt like it might be offensive to some people, uh, especially if you're listening to us online or you're somewhere else and uh, you don't consider yourself, if you are in one of these groups as a cult member, okay, fine, we're, we're going to delete that term tonight the best we can and use the word sex. Now you've got to deal with sex. <laughs> so it's not my fault, it's yours. We lose both ways. <laughs> so world religions and false sex, we're going to talk a little bit about that. The reason why is because so many of us have absolutely no clue what's going on out there with some of these false religions. We hear about them in the news. We hear the word Islam, but we don't know what it means. We hear the word Hindu, we don't know what it means. We hear the word Jehovah's Witnesses, we have no clue what that is. Uh, we've heard it, we know that they have little churches called Kingdom Halls around here and there, but, and they knock on our doors every once in a while and try to give us their literature, but we have no idea. We don't have the time to sit down and talk theology with them, so we don't know what they really mean. So I thought, let's take some time tonight and do a little research uh, on this stuff and talk about it, because we need to understand their language if we're going to be relevant and be able to commit or introduce the gospel to a person who's caught up in this. And the reason we're doing it is because Jesus warned us that such groups would exist and he spent actually quite a bit of time, as did Paul, as did Peter, as did John, teaching the church, exhorting the church, warning the church about the dangers of these false sect religions. They spent a lot of time doing that. The reason was, is because it was a problem for the, for the early church. And we have 
churches on every corner in America today, and we don't really understand the magnitude of the problems because we don't live in a Hindu country. We don't live in a Muslim country. We don't live in a country that's been overtaken by some sort of false religion. We don't have that. It's not relevant to us, therefore we don't pay attention. The deal is, they're out there, and it's very difficult. It's, it's ruining a lot of lives, and I, wanna, and I want us all to look at it, because Jesus taught about it. He said, Matthew 24, five, uh, 4 and 5, Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah, and will deceive not a few, but many. Again, Matthew 7, verse 15. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, by their fruit, you will recognize them. Now, as I said, in order to keep things clear and hopefully less offensive during this study, I will refrain from using the word cult, even though that is a very common term that's been used up until this time. A cult or sect in our context, can be defined as a group of people with a religious, philosophical, or cultural identity, sometimes viewed as a sect and often existing on the margins of society or exploitative towards its members. We are referring to groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and also the term religion, referring to large, widespread religions uh, that are located in certain specific geographical areas in the world, such as in Islam or Hinduism. So when we say sect, it's kind of an all-encompassing term referring to all of the things I just, all of the religions I just mentioned. Now, I became a Christian in, 19, in October of 1970, and in those days there was a very powerful move of God's Spirit in the United States. It started on the West Coast and quickly spread across the country. Young people, especially my age, were coming to Christ by the thousands, many of them being set free from the drugs and the, uh, the lifestyles that were so prevalent in those days, just set free completely from it. It had spread throughout the United States and even in Europe, it was very prevalent. There were supernatural signs and miraculous events and powerful evangelistic meetings. Everywhere, the gospel found fertile soil in the hearts of these young people who were looking for answers for life and the basic questions of life. Why am I here? Where did I come from? Where am I going? And so we learned quickly that in sync with this amazing outpouring of God's spirit, another spirit was also hard at work uh, doing everything possible to destroy the things that God's spirit was doing in us, the things he was building into people's hearts. There was another spirit working to try to destroy all of that. And there were certain forces at work employing human helpers to mislead and frighten young believers from following Jesus Christ. 
There were groups like Hare Krishna's, the local church, the way. Uh, you might remember Jim Jones. His, his church was called the People's Temple. They actually started in the town where I was living when I got saved in Indianapolis. Children of God, another group called the Bible Speaks, and of course the already established sects of Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Unitarian, and then the long-established world religions of Hinduism, Islam, and Buddhism. Uh, we would spend a lot of time in the early days in downtown areas where there was a lot of foot traffic communicating the gospel to people after we became Christians. And we talked to all kinds of people about Jesus. Uh, we frequently ran into people from these groups and we were always challenged, always, by how well they knew the Bible. It was amazing how well a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness knew the Bible. Uh, and their arguments were powerful. And uh, they were typically against our version of Orthodox Christianity. And man, it was, it was very, very uh, confusing at times and intimidating to run into these people because I didn't always know how to answer them. You've probably run into someone from one of these uh, cults or world religions. You may work beside them. You may go to school with them. Uh, and my question to you was, if you've ever gotten into a spiritual discussion, how did that go? It was probably pretty intimidating for you too. It's, it's hard. Um, most of the time, in those days, we had no idea how to answer these people. We just knew they were weird because our leaders said that they were weird. We just believed what our leaders were saying. That's, that's all we knew. Uh, and so because we didn't know how to talk to them, we would really try to avoid any kind of deep conversation uh, whenever possible. And the scary part was that they didn't just want to have a discussion with us about spiritual things. And to our amazement, they really weren't that open to wanting to learn about Jesus. They wanted to convert us. They wanted to draw us away from our Christian friends and our Christian churches so we could join their church or their group. That was their agenda the whole time. It was very intimidating, like I said. They weren't simply informing us. Uh, they were recruiting us. They, they did so with no apology whatsoever. And this was the nature of the false sects that we encountered. And we lost a lot of good Christian friends to these groups. I remember in 1970 during Christmas break, and I had just become a Christian in October, and so here it was December, and we're on break and we're back home, and I hear from my friends back in Indianapolis that the children of God swept through Indianapolis, and uh, they would infiltrate the Bible studies and the home groups and the churches in Indianapolis. They found out where they were. They were very strategic in how they did it. And their language was identical to ours, but they were much better versed in the Bible than we were. And within a few days of their appearance in Indianapolis, it only took them just a few days to get going, they were convincing young converts who had been saved in our ministry to stop going to our Bible studies and to attend only their Bible studies. Once they got the kids coming to their studies, they would start brainwashing them and eventually they would convince these kids that they needed to forsake everything and join their group and leave town with them when they left. And we lost a large number 
of young people to the children of God in just a couple of months in 1970. They left town with those kids, and we never saw those kids again. The language they used sounded just like ours. They looked just like we did. They sang the same songs that we did. But their whole point was that in order to go to heaven, in order to follow the true Christian faith, you had to be a part of their group. They were militant. They were sold out. Thousands of kids around the world joined the children of God in those years. And everywhere we traveled, uh, Pastor Mark and I, we eventually ended up in Europe. We were all over the United States. Everywhere we went, we would find kids who were in the children of God. And they would always try to draw young people away from our ministry into theirs. The children of God eventually morphed into the family of God. And then that morphed into the family international. And they are now known simply as the family. Yes, they still exist. They promoted this evangelism method. They called it flirty fishing. And this is where the female members of their group would go out into the public and they'd find some guy, some innocent looking guy and start flirting with this guy. They would draw him back to their house. They always had ministry houses where they lived together. They'd have sex with him in order to him to uh, let his guard down, and then they'd use that to witness to him about Jesus. That was their evangelism method in the early days. Sexual interaction between adults and underage children was practiced in the children of God, and to this day, all members of the group are encouraged to practice the love of Jesus, they call it, by freely sharing themselves sexually with each other, whether they're married or not. Their leader was David Berg, who referred to himself as Moses, or Moses David Berg, as people knew him. He died in 1994. His wife, Karen Zerbe, took over the leadership of the children of God. She remains a recluse. She's still alive, but no one ever sees her much. But she still heads up that group. And today, they've graduated. They now practice channeling or communicating with demon spirits, and famous deceased people in order to receive messages from God. As of 2012, the Family International Homes or Communes uh, had over 4,000 adult members. They were in the tens of thousands in, in the early days. Now they have 4,000. Uh, that's just adults. That's not including all the kids, because you can imagine with their philosophy about sex, there are children everywhere. And then they have a hundred different, they're in a hundred different countries around the world still today. And this is just one of many groups that emerged in the 60s and 70s on the heel of this genuine outpouring of the Spirit of God. You've heard Pastor Mark mention that we traveled together in the early uh, to middle 70s with a group of ex-hippies preaching the gospel. We had a big tent. I talked about it a few Wednesdays ago. And, um, and Pastor Mark and I, along with our wives, formed a Jesus rock band called The Joyful Noise. And that band, along with that, that team of people, we traveled all over Europe doing the very same thing that we'd been doing here in, this, in the States. 
uh, street evangelism and coupled with tent meetings every night. And because we traveled so much in those years, we were continually running into these groups in different cities. It wasn't just the children of God, it was just all kinds of different crazy groups. And these people were destructive and they ruined a lot of lives. They twisted the Bible to mean whatever they wanted it to mean and their ability to make converts was just magic. It was supernatural. I couldn't believe how gifted these people were at talking their way into somebody's life and then making them, having them join up and then travel off with them. It was amazing. The group that we were in, we were not totally innocent either. We were called Christ is the answer. And uh, we eventually, actually around 1974, started to become kind of a quasi-cult ourselves. Mostly because the leader of our group was very much like Moses David Berg. He was a controlling, driven personality. He had a great gift at communicating. He could talk anybody into anything. And he was the guy that we were following. Those of us who were in the group eventually began to discover how distorted our lives had become. And we left the group, but not without that leader denouncing us to the rest of the group and threatening that we might never go to heaven if we left his group, and that God would never use us again in the ministry. He told me the day I left, God will never use you again in the ministry the way he's been using you here in this group. Pastor Mark and Debbie left that group in 1977 after five years of being there. Gail and I stayed in 11 years. We left in 83 for many of us, it took years to recover emotionally from the experience that we had there. And if you look closely today, you'll notice that both Pastor Mark and I are cross-eyed from that experience. I'm just kidding. You thought I was serious. Pastor Mark, could you take off your glasses for a minute? The reason I want to share the information with you that we're talking about tonight about these sects is because you're going to encounter them. You do already on a regular basis. You may not know it. But they're the ones, again, like I said, they knock on our doors. You see them on the news. You see them in online articles and stories. They have Facebook pages. They have Twitter accounts. They, they have movies that are made about them. Uh, famous people are members of these groups. Parents your college student, by the way, will be approached by members of these groups when you send him or her off to college. It's a guarantee because college campuses are fertile ground for these religious sects to recruit new members. You need to know, parents, what's going on out there because there are so many clever counterfeits and they many times hang out on a college campus. And this is another reason, just uh, going to put a little plug in here, why we encourage our young adults at this church and those who are listening to us online, come spend a year with us at Transition One, our gap year school here at uh, Celebration Church after you graduate from high school. Do this before you go to college. Get grounded in your faith. Know what you believe. Know why you believe it before you go to college. Once you hit that college campus, your faith will be challenged by these very kinds of people. 
So this study that we're going to go through here will help you in two different ways. First, you're going to learn about the counterfeits that are out there and what they really teach. Not what they say, but what they really mean when they teach. And second, you're going to learn a lot more about the basic doctrines of your own Christian faith. The things that are fundamental to our beliefs, the things that seem so elementary for us, it's easy to pass over these things, these basics of the Christian faith. These sects reinvent our basics. They introduce what looks like the very same thing so that it's important that you know what the real deal looks like so you can spot the fake stuff later. It's the kind of training, any bank tellers in here? If you're a bank teller, the Secret Service comes in and gives you workshops every year at your bank. And they teach you not what fake money looks like, they teach you what a real American $20 bill looks like. And they grill you on it, and you learn, and you learn, and you learn that that $20 bill has certain properties, and if the bill that you're handed by some person depositing doesn't look like that $20 bill, then you know it's a counterfeit because you know what the real deal looks like first. That's how the Secret Service trains uh, bank employees. And it's the same thing with us. It's the very same thing. Am I? Oh, am I scratching? Oh, it's feeding back? Oh, sorry, guys. How's this? It's okay? Okay, so that's one way that, uh, that you can, uh, that, you can that, that will help you. First, uh, under, uh, recognize the counterfeits, and second of all, uh, learn how to deal with the basic doctrines of the faith. So we're going to kind of start with a general overview of what these false sects are like and how they twist their theology and twist language in order to convince people. And after that, we're going to go into some specifics about America's big three, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Mormons, and the Christian science, and then some of the world's major religions, Islam, Hinduism, and Buddhism. Uh, we're going to be using information from a textbook called The Kingdom of the Cults, uh, by Walter Martin. It was originally written in the 70s and it has been updated every few years because of there's so many new groups emerging all the time. You got to keep up on this stuff. So he defines in his book a cult or sect as any religious group which differs significantly in some one or more as respects as to belief or practice from those religious groups which are regarded as normative. For example, a normative religious group would be like a Protestant Christian group or, or a Protestant Christian denomination, uh, expression of religion in the total culture. A cult might also be defined as a group of people gathered around a specific person like a Moses David Berg or that person's interpretation of the Bible. For example, Jehovah's Witnesses exclusively follow the teachings of a man named Charles Taze Russell. And Mormons exclusively follow the teachings of two men, Joseph Smith and Brigham Young. The ironic thing about most uh, false sects is that though they differ significantly from Orthodox Christianity, their leaders continue to insist that they are entitled to be classified as Christians. We're going to be looking at these three uh, in three ways. Number one, we're going to look at the history of the three major sects. We're going to look at the theological evaluation of their major teachings. And then we're going to contrast their theology uh, with our scriptures based upon 
uh, good exegesis and hermeneutics. Exegesis is just a fancy theological word for interpreting what our Bible says, and hermeneutics is the study of how to apply that meaning in the scriptures to the here and now for the Christian today. So the main reason these false sects have been so successful is basically people's ignorance of the Bible. They're successful because nobody knows what the Bible says. That's why Pastor Mark does what he does every Wednesday night. That's why he continues to encourage people to come here. Why? Because we need to learn the Bible. We don't know anything about it. Not like these people. These people got it down. Uh, And so ignorance makes these people successful. And it makes it easy for them to gather followers. Here's a principle that you can always count on. Remember this. A sect member usually knows the Bible better than you do. You can count on it. So many modern scholars, they'll, they'll kind of take a wait-and-see approach to these cults. Let's just see if their practices lead to some sort of illegal or aberrant behavior. So they'll stand back. And then if they do, well, maybe we'll get involved with it. In other words, they've kind of chosen to, to ignore, the, or they've chosen to look at the what of the cults instead of the more important question of why. Why are these people doing this? Why are they only following this one man or this one woman? Why do they have to have their own Bible or their own special book? Why are their practices so often bizarre and weird when you get into the inner workings? Why? We want to try to answer that question. A typical example of the wait and see approach is seen in Acts chapter 5 where the apostles were brought before the Sanhedrin which is the holy Jewish council in Jerusalem, and they were accused, the apostles were, by the Sanhedrin, accused of their blasphemous teaching and forbidden to speak any more about Jesus Christ. And so it says in verse 6, when they heard this, they were furious, the religious leaders, and they wanted to put them to death, Peter and John. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. Then he addressed the Sanhedrin, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. And then he was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. And after him... Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and he led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed and all of his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will, not, uh, you will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them They called the apostles in and had them flogged, you know, just a little slap on the wrist. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Okay, so that approach might have been good for this religious man, Gamaliel. But that does not work when it comes to the things we're dealing with here tonight. We've got to look a little deeper than he looked. And when we do we discover that the belief systems of these groups are radically different from Orthodox Christianity. We need to know how they differ so we can recognize them and, if necessary, expose them or refute them in order to neutralize their effect on the church in our city and their effect on people that we know who could get caught up in this trap. 
reading through the New Testament shows us that Paul and the other apostles considered false teaching a major danger to the church. And they wasted no time in exposing it and bringing correction. He, uh, Paul wrote in Romans 16, I urge you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they, they deceive the minds of naive people. Then there was Peter. There were also false prophets, he said, among the people, just as there will be false prophets among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them and bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. And then finally Paul again in 2 Corinthians. I am jealous for you, Corinthians, with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough. I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing in order to cut the ground from under those who want an opportunity to be considered equal with us in the things they boast about, referring to the false teachers. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants, Satan's servants, also masquerade as servants of righteousness. Their end will be what their actions deserve. You see what their response was like? I mean, there was no wait and see with Paul and Peter. As soon as they discovered that these false teachers were trying to gain entry into the church, they exposed them immediately. They condemned them immediately. They forbid the church leaders to even allow them into the church meetings. Sinners were welcome, of course, always sinners are welcome. False teachers, with their own arrogant approach to the scriptures, were not welcomed by these people. Now, the ability for these sects to multiply and spread is amazing. For example, Mormonism started with six people in 1830, and now they number over 12 million people worldwide. There are many reasons why the sects thrive, and we're going to look at some of them in the next time we, we get together and talk about this. I don't know when that'll be. Um, probably the next time Mark goes to Costa Rica. Uh, so, but the bottom line with sex is the same as it is with every man. And here's the bottom line. The question we pose to the sect member, what do you think about Jesus? What do you think about Jesus? Jesus said a lot about himself. 
regarding his sovereign identity. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said of himself, if you do not believe that I am he, you will indeed die in your sins. Jesus did not say, I am one of many equally good ways. He did not say, I am a better way than others. I am an aspect of truth. I am a fragment of life. He never said that about himself. Instead, his claim was absolute. And allegiance to him as savior of the world was to take precedence over all the claims of men and their religions. This is really important for us to understand because of the prevailing message of our culture today regarding the unity of mankind in light of this plague of violence that we have on the face of the earth today. Now here's the common cadence that you're going to hear rehearsed and proclaimed everywhere throughout just about every type of media that you can imagine. And that cadence goes like this. We have to learn to get along. We all have to unite under one banner. All that matters is love. And your way to peace and happiness is just as legitimate as mine. And we have to play down the things that divide us and emphasize those things that make for unity. And we know that worldwide, unity of religion, unity of political uh, identity and political views, we know as Christians that's never going to happen because of the sinfulness in men's hearts. It can't happen. We can talk about it, wish for it, but it isn't going to happen. Not in this time, not in this life. We cannot be naive like Paul warned the Corinthians when it comes to the cry for worldwide peace and the brotherhood of man. We have to understand that this kind of peace, somehow created by all of us having a good will towards one another, cannot happen apart from a person being fundamentally changed on the inside by the power of God, by being born again and forgiven of his sins. That happens first, then we can talk about unity. A typical example, so you get what I'm trying to say here, the Olympics... The theme of every opening ceremony in the Olympics is always the promotion of worldwide peace, where we all learn to get along. You've seen it many times, so have I. The flag ceremony is incredible, it is impressive, it is inspirational, it is also made for TV. And that flag ceremony does absolutely nothing to highlight or even suggest that there is a remedy for the horrific violence going on in many of the countries who are marching in that parade. Nobody's talking about that at the Olympics. It's a sporting event. It's not a world congress. It has its own set of rules and politics. It has no influence, the Olympics doesn't, on countries that are at war or religious divisions that have been in in place all over the world for centuries and even millennia? How's the Olympics going to change that? Come on. And that's just one example. Some of the most bloodthirsty dictators in history called for the unity of the nations. Unity. 
under their banner. Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian Science, Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism, all the rest, they'll all make a case for world unity. But simply making a case means nothing. You have to understand what they mean by their words. You have to understand what they mean by the word unity before buying into their belief system. Well, Jesus, on the other hand, was realistic about unity. He never spoke about world unity. He never spoke about religious unity. He only spoke to his disciples. Not the community at large, just his guys. And when he talked to his guys, he said, I want you guys to all agree with one another. I want you guys to love one another. You stay of one mind, one purpose. The world is going to hate you, so stay together. But when it came to, to the prospects for world peace, here's what Jesus said. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. So there's real unity. It comes around the person of Jesus Christ. There is false unity, which is man-made and unable to break free from its own self-interest and prejudice, in spite of all of the language to the contrary and the well-meaning of the people. It can't be, it can't be achieved, because you can only have unity through Jesus Christ. Added on to false claims of unity, we also have to look at the more important problems with these false religious sects, and that is their interpretation of our scriptures. And so Jesus warned us about that. We read about it earlier. Watch out for the false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing. Inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognize them. Uh, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes, figs from thistles? Every good tree bears good fruit, bad tree bears bad fruit. Okay, by their fruits you will recognize them. We read that already. Num uh, next, uh, a quote from Walter Martin. Men are at liberty to reject Jesus Christ and the Bible as the word of God. They are at liberty to oppose him. They are at liberty to challenge it. But they are not at liberty to alter the essential message of the scriptures, which is the good news that God does care for the lost souls of his children and so loved us as to send his only son that we might live through him. And we should add that men are at liberty to do what they want with the scriptures and the message of Jesus, but they are not free from the consequences if they choose to twist and distort that message. And there are consequences. And the consequences are eternal. According to Jesus, that bad tree, it's always going to bear bad fruit. And by their fruit, you will recognize them. The problem is, you can look at the, and this is, a, this is a problem with some of the cults that we have in America today. You can look at the outward fruit of, for example, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness. You can look at their lifestyle and their family management and deduce that actually these guys are bearing pretty good fruit. The Mormons have long had the respect of the outside world as to the health of their families and strong sense of unity and belonging. And uh, the problem is they deny the basic teachings of the Bible. So they bear moral fruit, yes, but still there seems to be something wrong with their presentation. And we don't discover what's wrong until we dig in a little deeper 
And we find out that their whole theological framework and how they relate to God is against the basic teaching of our scriptures. We're going to see more about that when we talk specifically about the Mormons. It's crazy. But we've got to see that there's more to the fruit. Jesus said, by the fruit you shall know them. But there's more to that fruit he was talking about than just a person's outward behavior. There's a lot more to it. And this is a big problem in the early church. And it is a problem today. Teachers and groups who looked really good on the outside, but whose teaching about Jesus were very misleading. John wrote about this in his first epistle. He said, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. He didn't say a few. He said, there's a lot of them out there, you guys. This is the last hour. (laughs) He's saying that 2,000 years ago. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. In other words, they looked, they played a good game, but they really weren't part of us. If they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going out showed that none of them belonged to us. Going out theologically, going out doctrinally beginning to twist and distort the word of God into something that it was never meant to be. That's who he was referring to here. The reason why we have to look at this, these groups have an effect on people. The end product of their effect is that people are led astray and they can be lost forever. The effect is viral. The false ideas and teachings that make their home in a person until that person becomes a carrier of the disease and then he begins to spread and infect other people with it, just like a virus. And that's how they do it. So why look at this? Well, as I've said twice already tonight, you're going to encounter these people. You're going to see them in college, neighborhood, at work. Some are going to be more radical than others, but they're all going to have a hidden agenda. At that point, you're going to have a choice. If you want to get to know the person, you're going to have to either introduce that person to truth so that they can come out of that group and, walk, uh, and, and do something about it, or you're going to have to walk away if you're uncomfortable being around them. Because with them, there's no in-between. There just isn't. They're there to convert you. They're going to use the same language that you use. The main problem is what they interpret from that language and what they mean by that language when they present it to somebody outside of their group. Remember that the false sect member is there to gather you first. He is not there to listen to you. He is there to gather you. No matter how much they insist they want to be friends and hear your side of things, that is always going to be the case for them as long as they are ingrained in that group. You cannot afford to be naive. The religious sect member is programmed in his brain by careful and constant and insistent training to gather, to retrieve, to bring in, not listen. This is always the case, and you have to be aware of it. Which leads us to the next topic in this, and that is the problem of language. So before we get into the language and how they use language to draw people in, 
Let's talk about a few terms that we're going to be using as we go through this section. First of all, the term is semantics. Semantics is just a branch of linguistics that studies the meanings of words, uh, the individual meanings of words, as opposed to the overall meaning of a particular sentence or passage. Uh, it is the study of the relationship between words and their meanings. That's semantics. Uh, the next term is, is uh, pantheistic or pantheist. And that is believing that the universe is in some sense divine and should be revered or worshipped. A pantheist worships the universe. He uh, identifies the universe with God. For the pantheist, God, universe are equal. But he denies any personality or any transcendence to the person of God. And also the belief that everything is God, everything is inhabited by God. That's the pantheist. Then the next term, syncretism, the reconciliation or fusion of different systems or beliefs or the attempt at fusing these things together. I'll give you an example. Uh, when, when Gail and I were doing missionary work in the Philippine Islands, we went out into the villages in the Philippines and, um, and, and, and we would encounter uh, very devout Roman Catholics in the villages and then as we were praying for people or as we were visiting with people, we would discover that many of these people had been going and visiting the witch doctors in the town, trying to get cures for their illness or cures for their terrible situation in life or whatever. And this was a very typical practice. You'd go to the witch doctor, you'd pay him five bucks, he'd do a spell or an incantation over you, and hopefully things got better for you, almost never did. And so that was the way it was with their, in their culture. They visited the witch doctors in these Roman Catholic villages very frequently. What I found out while I was there was that when they went to the witch doctors, the spells and the incanda incantations that they were speaking over these people were in the name of the Catholic saints. They were using the name of the Catholic saints to bring about these curses or blessings uh, and conjuring up these spirits in the name of the saints in order to help these people get better. I did not know that. They were combining, in other words, witchcraft with Roman Catholicism. That's what we call syncretism. Uh, and then the final word we're going to be using some is Gnostic. G-N-O-I-S-G-N-O-O-G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Gnostic. Only it's Gnostic. And uh, Gnostics were a wide variety of quasi-Jewish early quasi-Christian sects that had a real interest in gnosis or divine knowledge. And they generally held the belief that there is a God greater than the demiurge or the creator of the world whose adherents shunned the material world which they viewed as created by an evil or clumsy entity they called the demiurge and they embraced the spiritual world. Okay, so for Gnostics, um, you have God who is infinitely great and untouchable. And you have God subprime, who is the demiurge, okay? And he is less than God, but he's the one who was assigned to create the universe. And then Gnostics believed that God was too holy and too perfect in his being to associate with human beings. And so there was no possibility of any kind of personal relationship with that God as Christians understood it. And if you read the epistle of John, uh, there's five chapters in it, toward, it's just, the, just before Revelations at the end of the Bible, almost that entire letter 
was written to Christians as his response to the Gnostic teaching that was infiltrating the church at that time. And he was addressing their false teaching. And so you can keep that in mind if you do ever use that for your devotions. Now, uh, Walter Martin says this, the originators and promulgators of cult theology have done exactly the same thing to the semantic structure, remember the meaning of words, of Christian theology as the modern theologians have done. Now it is possible for a Jehovah's Witness, a Christian scientist, or a Mormon to utilize the terminology of biblical Christianity with absolute freedom, having already redesigned these terms in a theological framework of his own making and to his own liking, but almost always at direct variance with the historically accepted meaning of those terms. And so, again, you have this principle involved in most of the false sects where they will take the Christian scriptures, they will use the words that you and I use, salvation, Christ, Messiah, faith, and they will reinterpret that word so they can use it to the unexpecting person, the innocent person, the naive person, uh, and make it seem like they're using our language. And it causes you, of course, to bring your defenses down, and that gives them access to your brain, where they can get in there and start to teach all of these things that they've twisted. Okay, so the Christian then must be prepared to scale the language barrier. We're talking about the problem of language with false religions, false sects, We have to be prepared to scale the language barrier of terminology. First, I must recognize that it does exist. So as soon as you're talking with a person who's in one of these religions or sects, you understand automatically, right off the bat, there is a wide gap between what they mean by their terminology and what I mean by my terminology. There is no way to cross those two things. And the second thing, we have to acknowledge the very real fact That unless terms are defined when one is either speaking to these people or reading their theology, the semantic jungle which the sects have created will envelop him, making difficult, if not impossible, to make a proper contrast between the teachings of the sects and those of Orthodox Christianity. You always keep that in mind, even if you're reading their literature. Say a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, would you like to have uh, one of our Watchtower magazines and... They give it to you and you take it in and you put it on your coffee table. I'll read it later. And you sit down and you start reading that stuff. And if you don't know what you're reading, their language is so similar to what the language you're reading in your Christian book that you bought in our Christian bookstore, you can't tell the difference. It's, it's all the same. You know? That's why we have to understand the semantics and the psychology of these people. In other words, if I'm engaged in a conf- conversation with that sect member... The first thing you're going to notice, this is if a JW knocks on your door or a Mormon knocks on your door and you invite them in, and you've actually got time to talk to one of them. Okay, that's, that happens. I'm talking to college kids because you're going to meet these people on the college campuses all the time. You need to know how to carry on this conversation. So the first thing you're going to notice is they're going to use the very same language you use. And this person will seem to be in full agreement with everything that you say about what you believe in Jesus, and he will even tell you so. I am in complete agreement with what you just told me. Yes, we believe that too. You mean you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Oh yeah, he's the Son of God. You mean he died for the Son of God? Oh yeah, yeah, we believe that too. 
you believe in eternal life and get to heaven and forgiveness? Oh yeah, absolutely. We totally agree with you on that. What's the problem, in other words? Why won't you listen to what I have to say? But you're also going to be aware that after you've had this conversation going on for a little while, you're going to have a feeling you're really not communicating with this person at all. That this person is speaking a completely different language than you. And you would be right. You have not really been communicating because the language of these sects is not the real language of the Bible. It is not the language that the Holy Spirit speaks to you when you read the Word of God. It's a different language. It sounds the same, but it's not the same. Sect members engage in what Walter Martin calls theological term switching or manipulation of terminology. They capitalize on the almost total inability of the average Christian to understand the subtle art of redefinition in the realm of biblical theology. And this is all they're doing, is they're taking our words and redefining our words and then feeding them back to people who just don't know what those words mean anyway. It sounds the same. If you persist in conversation with a sect member without making him first define these terms, it is a waste of your time. You start there. When they start talking to you and they're talking and using words like salvation or Jesus Christ or Messiah or eternal life, you stop them and say, hold on, time out, time out. I want you to tell me right now specifically, how do you define eternal life? How do you define salvation? He is speaking a different language. It sounds the same, but it's not. Insist on defining these terms first. First of all, Typically, concerning the nature of God, the omniscience of God. Ask, ask this sect member, what do, you, what do you think about the omniscience of God? Does he know everything all the time effortlessly? What do you think about that? Tell me your definition of that. What do you think about the Trinity? Do you think God is three in one? They got a big problem with that. What do you think about the self-existence of God, that he needs no other input from any source to live and exist by himself because he is self-existent? What do you think about the sovereignty of God over the universe? Does he have absolute rule over everything? Or is it, are there some exceptions? Define to me sovereignty. Tell me what you mean. Talk to them about the person and the nature and the work of Jesus Christ. What about the deity of Jesus Christ? Is he God in human flesh or was he not? Tell me what you think. What about the death and resurrection of Jesus? Did he die and rise? Because many of them don't believe it was really Jesus who rose from the dead. Many sects and religions don't even believe that was really Jesus on the cross. Talk about... God's hand in creation, but more important, talk about Jesus' hand in creation because he was present and responsible for the creation of the universe. And the New Testament is very clear about that. False sects don't believe that because they believe, as the Mormons do, that Jesus is a created being himself. They do not believe he was the creator of the world. Talk about the lordship of Jesus Christ. Is he the boss? Does he rule over everything? Will every knee bow to him someday? 
Define to me what you mean by Lord when you use that word. Define to me these things, these terms. The purpose of the sacrifice of Jesus for sin. Do you even believe in sin? Do you believe in the guilt of the human race? What do you think about that? Proper usage of definitions as a practical tool will rob that sect member of at least two of his advantages. He has two advantages over you unless you make him define terms. The first advantage, surprise. You won't see him coming. You will be absolutely shocked at how well he knows the Bible. So he's got that element surprise on you before you even know what hit you. Second thing is confusion. He can put a person who doesn't really know the scriptures into confusion so fast you don't know what hit you. And it's, and it's because he knows it better than you know it, like we talked about earlier. So those are just some things to be on the watch for when you're encountering a person who is a part of one of these groups. They really look good. Um, what I'm going to do, uh, we're going to put my, my phone number up on the screen like we did last time. My guess is that some of you have questions. And so we're going to use the last few minutes tonight, and we'll, we'll get into this another time. Uh, we're going to talk about trick, trick terminology and, and, and some of the things they use, and a uh, little bit more about language barrier, and then we're going to talk about the psychological barrier that exists there between us and the cult member. So uh, those of you guys that are at our other campuses or online, if you want to text my phone, I better get it out. That would help, wouldn't it? And uh, give me a text if you have a question. Any questions in here tonight about what we were talking about? Have, have any of you encountered a, a cult member or a false sect member and had to go through these kinds of discussions with them and you had, maybe you knew what you were doing and you were able to have an, a good conversation with them. What do you think? Yes? And she was in one of those groups, and then she came out and no longer believes. Okay, that's, that's very sad. Yeah, now that happens, that happens. It, she was saying she had a friend who was in one of those groups and then came out of it and now doesn't believe in God at all anymore. So uh, that happens probably more frequently than we would realize. Yes? She wasn't exactly listening, was she? No, no. <laughs> okay. Same yeah, same deal. Yeah. And the, the giveaway was, I've, I've left many churches. <laughs> she got kicked out of a lot of churches. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, there's a giveaway right there. Anybody else? Any other? Oh, we've got a question online here. Let's see. What do they say? 
Oh, I got five. They're coming in hot and heavy. Uh, will you elaborate on how Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in hell? Yes, I will, but not tonight. Um, I sure would hate to come to your door. This must be a Jehovah's Witness listening in. Uh, uh, Let's see. Do other religions view us as a cult? They absolutely do. Uh, so evangelical Christianity is looked upon by many people in many parts of the world as a bunch of weirdos and crazy people. Like if you were go to India, uh, the, the Christian community in India is looked upon by the majority Hindu population as totally whacked out and, and uh, under the under the influence of false teaching and the whole thing. And the Christian, that's why they're despised so much in India. Uh, Christians are. They, they really give them a hard time. So yes, we, we are looked upon as a cult. Um, who did they believe was on the cross or what did they believe happened to Jesus? Well, short answer is they believe that some criminal was substituted for Jesus at the last minute after he was flogged and they led Jesus off somewhere else and then they put this guy up there to impersonate. It looked like Jesus, but it wasn't really Jesus and he died on the cross and then they got rid of the guy's body. And then, of course, Jesus, being still alive, comes back from the dead and that's why they don't believe in the resurrection. Okay, so that, that's just a short answer to that question. It was just, they think they picked some criminal guy out of the crowd and threw him up on the cross. Do you take the time to convert them to Christianity? You know, and that's, I, I would love to, but we're just talking about step number one tonight. These are baby steps that you have to take with a person who is involved in a situation like this. You can't just convert them overnight. Eventually, hopefully, it, you can develop a relationship with them if they're open-minded. And that's what I encourage people to do. Just love them. Be friends with them. If, you're a co if they're a co-worker or a neighbor, just love them. Be friends with them. You know, be nice like Pastor Mark said, and maybe you can have an intelligent conversation with them without them trying to uh, convert you. And then in time, maybe bring them to church with you. Um, let's see, there was one in there, a text from my wife, where I told her how I took our dog out to poop and pee earlier today. So that didn't have anything to do with what we're talking about. Okay, oh, uh, Sean, if someone is a new believer and weak in their faith, would you recommend that they shy away from an interaction or conversation with uh, a sect, sext member? I would recommend that, yes. Uh, if you're new in the faith, uh, if you're just kind of new and converting, a new convert to Christianity, or, or just a new person in the faith and you don't really know much about the Bible, don't get involved with these people. You know, unless... You know, you really feel, or maybe grab somebody that's an older Christian and invite the person out to coffee and have a good, you know, that's a little bit older Christian and they can maybe have a conversation in that kind of an environment. But man, if you're, if you're young to the faith, it's going to be really hard to carry on a decent conversation. Um, can I give specific examples of how Mormons deceive? Yes, I can, but not tonight. We'll, we'll talk, uh, uh, also, can you repeat questions that are asked in Green Bay before you answer? I think I did that, didn't I? One of them. What was the other question? Oh, Diane, what was yours? I mean, is your name Diane? 
what, what did you say? It was a statement more than a question. She was, Bob, she was just talking about uh, a friend, uh, a person that she met in a store. An establishment. Was it the local bar, Diane? <laughs> and we were both having a beer together, and then she started going off on how many churches it kicked her out. The truth comes out. I'm just kidding. Oh boy, I really embarrassed her now. Um, if my college-aged child is going to a church, how do I know or find out if it is a non-sect church? Uh, just the best thing to do would be to attend that church with your child when they go, when you visit them on campus the next time. That's the best thing to do. Um, uh, here's one that just wrote the word Thompson. Oh, will you elaborate on how uh, Jehovah's Witnesses don't believe in hell? I will, but not tonight. I don't have time tonight. Um, let's see, what else have we got here? Uh, do people of other sects, do other religions view us as a cult? Do people of other sects know their own beliefs as thoroughly as they do ours? Oh, yes. That's what I've been trying to say tonight is they absolutely know their stuff. They're grilled in it, and grilled in it, and grilled in it, and they know it. I mean, they're sending these, these people door to door in your community to converse with you about their faith. They've got to know their stuff before they go knocking on a door. They can't come in. That's why they go two by two. Uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, when they send out their people, they'll send out one who's been in the church for years with a, of the new convert. The new convert always goes with the older person who has been around for a while. Why? Because the new convert is learning the ropes. The older Jehovah's Witness will be the spokesperson when they knock on your door, always. And the new person will sit and nod their head and say yes, because <laughs> they don't know anything. Uh, they will know something later on, but that's how they train their people. Um, so uh, do they blindly follow their leaders without checking to see if what they say is true, but at the same time study Christians in depth in order to convert them? Yes, to all of that. They do all of that. Um, why did you stay in that cult so long? What helped you see? Uh, I was stupid. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, easily intimidated because I, had, I was insecure. And uh, as a result of my weaknesses, my emotional weaknesses, I was easy prey for a man like that. And so we followed him blindly for those number of years, I can't even begin to describe to you how difficult it was to leave him and to leave that group because I felt so guilty. It took me a year. Every night, I kept thinking, I'm going to go to hell. I just know it for leaving this group. I just knew I was going to go to hell. It took me a year of being in a normal church in the town that we were living to hear the gospel of Jesus and how much Jesus loved me, no matter what, before I actually started believing, oh, I can still go to heaven and not be a part of that group anymore. That's how bad it affected me. Um, so why did you stay? I was deceived and I was an idiot. Do you consider Catholicism a sect? Oh man, is that a loaded question? I'm not going to answer that tonight. We are not going there, so don't even try. Who do they believe was on the cross? What do they believe happened to Jesus? I normally only see men, Jehovah's Witnesses going to the door. Why not women? Oh, women do it too. 
So, are Seventh-day Adventists considered a cult or sect? No. Uh, I would say that there is some argument about that regarding the Seventh-day Adventists, mainly because they do believe in strictly following the Ten Commandments. They do believe in having church on Saturday, which they believe is the Sabbath. And so, among other things, I know almost nothing about the Seventh-day Adventists except those two things I just said, but there is a, a, a divide in amongst evangelical scholars regarding the Seventh-day Adventists. Some believe that they are a cult. Some believe they're just fine and they're good people. Pastor Mark has mentioned that before. He believes they're good people. And so I kind of go on what, what he says there because I don't really know. Um, uh, it, do people of other sects know their own beliefs? As as, oh, is there a possibility of someone not leaving a sect even though they know it is not true? Or good. If so, what are the reasons for that? Oh, well, uh, that would be psychological bondage if they stayed there. So that would be a reason for that, I think. Okay. Um, and then, Nancy, you had your hand up. Yeah. Um, but I read your book, Joe. God really used you guys. Oh, yeah. I'm not saying he didn't use us. Right. Those of you guys that read my book, those were the years that we were in that group, you know. Uh, and so, but... Be, just because you're in a group like that, we did preach that Jesus was God. We did believe in the Trinity. We believed all the basic Christian doctrine. It wasn't our doctrine that hurt us. It was our methodology. We were, we were whacked out in how we did our Christianity, but we really did do our Christianity. We believed in it. We preached it, and God blessed it. But it was our methodology that bound us all up, not the gospel. So, yes, God moved and worked through us in those years in an amazing way. And I, I, I wouldn't have written that book had I believed those were wasted years. I do believe God used us in a wonderful way. But I'm telling you, man, it got worse and worse and worse the longer we were in that group until finally when it was time to leave, it was like, oh, man, this is really bad. So, I'm sorry? What do you mean by worse? Just the bondage in the group and the the state of the man who was the leader of the group, the mental, emotional state of the guy, was just getting worse and worse and worse because he realized he was starting to lose control. I was his right-hand man, you know, and when he lost me, he was, it was like all of a sudden a revelation, like I'm starting to lose my grip on my leaders, and he got really, really freaked out for a while. So, Bob, the question from Nancy was, how, you know, I wrote my book about all the experiences I had during those 10 years I was in that group in the mission field and stuff. How did that, did, was that all for nothing? And I said, you know, it was absolutely good. You heard what I said. Okay. Um, Dick? Um, this is more like a statement than a question, but um, we had an experience a while back with the Jehovah's Witnesses that we kind of became friends with them and then they wanted to do a Bible study at our house. And um, part of what you were saying was, was truly the, how they approached us and everything. But yeah. the other thing that they did um, was that they wanted to do the Bible study, but instead of doing it like Pastor Mark where they start, where he starts, you know, and just reads through the whole Bible, they took the approach where they had their pamphlet with all their um, unusual beliefs, like mm -hmm. why they don't celebrate Christmas and Easter. Right. And, um, they went to that first? Well, after we agreed to do a Bible study. Oh, kind of, oh. We got to be friends with them a little oh, bit, and they just right. came, and we didn't refuse the pamphlets, you know, so then right. they just kept coming and coming. All right. And um, then after a while, when we started doing the Bible study, they would say, you know, this is our belief, and then they would open the Bible up, their, their um, interpretation, and they would 
give us proof about why, where it says in the Bible that this is, you know, it is all out of context. Yeah. And I think that was a big thing for Yeah, people. yeah. Everything that they teach is so out of context. Oh, totally. The well, Bible the other thing you have to understand is uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses have their own Bible. Right. It's called the New World Translation. And it's a completely whacked out translation. Uh, this uh, James, what was, I, what was his name? Russell Lowe? What was his name I tell you? I can't remember. Charles Tazzy Russell, who is the founder, claimed to be a Hebrew and Greek scholar. And he was not. He couldn't read one line of Greek. And yet he reinterpreted the whole Bible. And they have their own version, and it's just completely whacked out. So, just so you know, that... That's why they probably didn't do a Bible study, because they probably knew you guys knew your Bibles a little bit better. Uh, how much does my book cost again? That's $3,700 per <laughs> copy. If you're interested, Bob Cole just asked. No, it's, it's, it's 15 bucks, I think, if you buy it from the church, or it's uh, online, it's like 12 bucks. Uh, do you believe some independent fundamental Baptists are sects? I'm not going there. Are Pentecostals considered a sect in some circles? They absolutely are. What about multiple wives? We believe in that here. <laughs> good news for you surprise surprise you're in a cult <laughs> Pastor Lathan said I better clarify that <laughs> we absolutely do not believe in multiple wives at Celebration Church in Green Bay, Wisconsin all right uh, Mormons used to believe in that. They really, most Mormons today don't subscribe to that either. There's a separate sect of Mormons that believe in, uh, what do they call that? Huh? Polygamy. They believe in it, but most Mormons don't subscribe to that anymore. Got bad press. Uh, okay. And, uh, yeah. All right. Those has, any other questions before we, okay. Mark? I'm not sure. I'm not sure if the fortune tellers are tied together. Uh, you know, they're in it for the money. They're in competition with each other, so my guess is they're not. Uh, unless they have a fortune teller's convention, you know. Probably in Madison. That wouldn't surprise me a bit. Any other questions? Yes. Oh, yeah. I haven't heard that about Joel Osteen. I don't know. Her question was, uh, she had heard, was it true that he was coming up with his own version of the Bible, Joel Osteen? And I don't have an answer for that. I have no clue. There's a lot of bad stuff that gets said about him, and I don't know what to believe, to be honest. Anybody else? Cool. All right. Well, I think your kids are all out in the lobby. Waiting for you. God bless. Have a great night.